I'm Ryan Pack. And I'm Nicole Barlow. And this is Soundtrack Your Life, where we talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they feel connected to. Today we are joined by Dina Friedman, who is a producer on the Media Path podcast. Welcome, Dina. It's my pleasure to be here. So for our listeners who haven't heard of Media Path, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So um, Media Path podcast is um, an interview format, sort of conversation, discussion style uh, podcast that is co-hosted by two like basically like legendary broadcasters from the Los Angeles area. Um, Fritz Coleman, who I think most Angelinos know. <laughs> I see Nicole <laughs> raising her. <laughs> I'm like nodding vigorously with excitement. Keep going. Legend. Fritz um, Coleman is legend. Yes. So he was the primetime NBC weathercaster for almost 40 years until he retired, um, kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And then Louise Palenker, who is a filmmaker, documentarian, photographer, drummer, the list goes on. Um, and she was also a co-founder of the Premier Radio Networks, which is now a part of um, iHeartMedia. So uh, Louise, we call her, everyone calls her Wheezy. So Fritz and Wheezy talk um, every week to a usually an icon of the entertainment industry. Um, we've had people like Henry Winkler, um, Keith Morrison, Vicki Lawrence, Ed Begley Jr., Mark Summers. I mean, like, we've, we're at 128 episodes, so, like, the list is huge. And um, at the same time as interviewing someone from the entertainment industry who's made, like, a pretty huge mark on the entertainment industry, they also do, um, like, recommendations. Their recommendations for current media offerings, like what's streaming, what they've been enjoying in the media. Um, so it's kind of like a good mix uh, between the sort of like entertainment industry, like historical, you know, cultural like touchstones that, you know, have made such a huge mark on everyone's lives. And then also like what's going on now in the media. And we kind of like un un unironically referred to the show as Boomer, Boomer Nirvana. Fritz and Weezy are boomers, and so many of the guests that we've had on the show are like people that were like huge for boomers when they were growing up. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to listen to. They've got stories upon stories, and then the people that they interview have um, a ton of stories too. I was listening to the Kelly Lang episode, and you know, she was um, what, the first female anchor? So Kelly Lang was the first female primetime news anchor um, on an NBC station. I believe it also could be in the LA market. So either, either one or both, but definitely for any NBC station. And it was KNBC in the, it must've been the seventies or eighties. And she has great stories because she was in like the business for many years before. So she's been in the business for decades. And before she became the, the anchor, she was also doing um, all 
sorts of other kind of reporting, like trying to get her foot in the door. And she was um, what they called a copter girl, like who was flying around in the helicopter reporting on, you know, what's going on on earth or whatever. And they, it's crazy because like what we, what like the way that we described the episode is that like in that, in her day when she was like trying to, um, you know, when her career was like just taking off, women in news were a novelty and they were treated that way. She, they dressed her up in these like crazy spacesuit, like latex outfits and like did these like stunts or whatever, because that's what, um, you know, how like you would utilize a woman in like the news market. So, and it's, it's crazy because like, it's so, we're so, you know, that's, at least that is in the past. And like, there's not, um, that's not an issue for women in that business anymore. But like, she, like diversity was not a thing when she was first like working. Um, and she just kind of like blazed a trail. And it's amazing hearing her stories. That's so cool. I feel like younger generations watch something like Anchorman the movie with Will Ferrell and they're like, well, that's just ridiculous. That's parody. But no, like this stuff was um, very real. So it's very cool that your podcast is kind of telling some of those stories of our L.A. hidden gems. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's there's so much there for like all like all demographics. Right. Like we do. Our show does target um, an older audience. But I think that like people of any generation can get some some value from what we're offering because there is so much. I mean, we've got 128 episodes, which is not nothing, um, but it's not like, you know, some giant, you know, volume, like volumes and volumes of audio. But there is so much packed into those 128 hours it's like you and you get such an amazing like um worm's eye view you know from all of these different like people in the industry who have just like seen between everyone that we've interviewed like they've literally seen it all and like i feel so privileged like uh before we go on i know like we want to talk about the full monty but i just want to share like a quick story that like will always stay with me which is when we interviewed pat boone and i was just thinking about this the other day because it was Harry Belafonte's birthday. And um, Pat Boone used to like host one of those like variety shows in the 50s that was um, like sponsored by, I think it was Chevy. I want to say it was Chevy. Um, and so he invited Harry Belafonte, it was like one of the biggest entertainers at the time. So he invited him on his show. And the sponsor was like, no, like we can't have an African-American perform on your show because that's not going to fly. That's not going to help us sell cars in like Nebraska or whatever. And so Pat Boone was like, uh, at first he was like, okay. And then he was like, you know what? He turned around and was like, you know what? I, I feel like I have to quit this show because it's called the Pat Boone Variety Hour or whatever, has my name on it. And yet, like, one of the biggest entertainers, one of my close friends that, like, I would love to have on the show is, like, not allowed to to be on. And so he's, like, you know, respectfully, like, this is not the, the Pat Boone show and I have to quit. And the reason that this is, like, it stayed in my mind is because, like, Harry Belafonte's still alive. He just turned, like, 96 or 97, and it was, like, in his lifetime 
that this kind of blatant racism was happening. And so it's just like, these are like really important stories that like are, they're like pop culture kind of, you know, histories, but they are so important to like the rest of our, you know, our world. And um, yeah, I just feel like really privileged to be able to like interact with all these people all the time. Yeah, that's an awesome story. It's a great story. Know your history. It, it reminds me of this uh, Dr. John story. He was playing down in New Orleans and he got arrested for basically performing with an African-American musician. So like, you know, they hadn't repealed all the segregation laws. Like they had forgotten like, oh, we forgot to repeal being able to play on the same stage as a black person. So he got arrested and I think like they broke his finger and I think it permanently damaged like some nerves in his, in his hand, but he still told the cops, he's like, I guess you're going to see me next week. Cause Ray Charles is in town. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That, and to think of like, you know, usually if, if I were ever to be arrested, I'd probably be scared out of my mind, but for him to have like such a like smart remark like guess you're gonna be back here next week because ray charles is in town right yeah that's badass i love that all right so today we are going to talk about the 1997 peter cataneo film the full monty so why are we talking about the full monty today dina um so this was one of my favorite movies when i was in my teens, I mean, what like seventeen-year-old girl doesn't love a movie about middle-aged British steel workers naked <laughs> so that they can hold on to their kids? <laughs> um, and I just love this movie. I saw it like a million times when it was still in the theater. I couldn't get enough of it, and I love the soundtrack. I own the soundtrack on cassette. And I, I lived in New York City at the time, and I was always walking around Manhattan listening to my Full Monty soundtrack. And it just really, the entire thing, the movie, the music, everything just really, like, resonated with me. Because I think it's kind of like a really universal story. And I think the, you know, or like has, you know, themes that are relatable to everyone. Um, and the music just does such a great job of like you know supporting that the the story yeah it's a really charming and distinctly british little indie movie right and i feel like on the topic of knowing uh your trailblazers and your forebears and what came before you uh children this is what we had before magic mike and magic mike X xxl right like before that story we had the full monty um, we had Chippendales, which inspired the cast or the characters in the Full Monty to uh, kind of decide to get a bunch of money doing the striptease because the, the movie is about out of work steel workers in like northern Britain who uh, need to bootstrap up and they decide to strip because Chippendales are doing it and they figure that's a way to make a lot of money. But they're not, uh, you know, dancers. Understatement. <laughs> that's a great way to to summarize the film yeah that's basically it definitely not dancers 
like except for uh gerald gerald arthur cooper um but he's not that kind of dancer right (laughs) he's a, a traditional ballroom dancer who takes uh dance classes with his wife but he does teach them all some moves Uh, This movie stars uh, an actor named Robert Carlyle, who a lot of people know better as Begbie, the sort of uh, murderous thug from Trainspotting. And so in this movie, he plays, you know, like a similar working class character, but a dad and a lot less scary. So you can kind of see how like this maybe led to that (laughs) other thing. Um, But he actually is really great in this, I feel like. He is like sort of uh, the epitome of like, British working class hero and you end up really liking him and finding him like very charming even though he fucks up for two hours yeah he's he's a pretty big loser he really is but then you kind of like him you kind of you can't help but sympathize with him even though <laughs> he is consistently fucking up yeah definitely the lovable loser absolutely <laughs> And then you have um, Mark Addy, who plays his best friend, Dave, whose last name, uh, the character's last name is like Horse, Horseful, Horseful, which somehow I never like registered until I rewatched the movie uh, this week. Um, I did rewatch it one time, like a few years ago. But like I said, I've seen it a million times and Horseful, I never got that until this week. So I'm like, okay, I guess you learn something new before almost 41 years old and you just learned like the name of the character on your favorite movie. But so Dave, it's what what's cool about the Dave and Gaz dynamic is that they're both kind of losers, but they have like their their loserdom is like di- expresses itself differently in Dave versus Gaz. So you kind of have like, you have a range of issues that make between the two of them, it becomes like a very relatable like situation because it's like, if you don't have a problem that that Gaz has, like maybe you have a problem that Dave has. Yeah, and I think they're all kind of connected because they're victims of the same economic circumstances that they're all unemployed and in one form or another, you know, down on their luck through kind of no fault of their own, but more because of the climate that they're in and this really depressing, you know, British town of Sheffield that's they're now out of work in. There's no more industry. They've got to figure that out. Um, If you only know one clip from this movie, it's probably the part of the movie where they're in the unemployment line and they're kind of casually like dancing to Hot Stuff by Donna Summer. The most iconic probably other than maybe like the dancing at the end, the strip, the actual like striptease at the end, that scene is definitely like, it's on, it's on another level. Yeah. I, I like to watch trailers for these movies just for fun, just to kind of get reacquainted. And uh, for one, like nineties trailers are just bad, like so bad compared to <laughs> trailers today, but you know, they were smart enough to stick that scene in. Because obviously in the trailer, they can't show like the striptease part because, you know, ratings and all that stuff. And you don't want to, you know, spoil the climax of the film. But they knew to stick that in at the end. And how can you not want to uh, laugh at that, you know? 
I was also in my teens when this movie came out. I don't think I saw it in theaters because as a teenage boy, it would, it's hard to um, mm-hmm. convince your other teenage boy friends that we should watch this movie about male strippers without without being ridiculed because it's like the whole movie is kind of about these guys that are finding like friendship with each other even though they're super emotionally stunted and have like no clue how to do that by the end of the movie they're all but the trailer didn't tell me that this would be about male friendship right the trailer doesn't really do that for you the trailer is more like hey here's some um very pasty british guys that are gonna take their clothes off hey rick from homeroom you want to go to that (laughs) yeah like i remember going like oh this looks funny but it was also like i don't know how to ask my friends to go watch this movie well as someone who was in the theater many times i have to say the majority of the other patrons who were there with me were probably much older women like women of a certain age because i think that was like the audience at that time for that type of that genre of like british indie movie that was kind of like maybe i can't now i can't remember if this was in full release full wide release or if i had to go to like some sort of like special like art house theater or whatever to see it i know that i did eventually it eventually made its way to the three dollar theater in manhattan but um now i can't remember what i can't remember what theater i saw the full monty in um but yeah definitely like teenage boys were not i didn't see many in the theater with me. Probably not the target demo. It's no. so fair. I, I also, when I was watching, re-watching the film this week, because I hadn't seen it in many, many years, I was thinking about how this kind of kicked off a slate of very similar, um, oh, look, it's British people doing like naughty things. Right, yeah. This movie from 2003, it's called Calendar Girls, and it's kind of a similar story where Helen Mirren and this group of other, like, very proper British women decide to make a naked calendar to raise money for, like, a cancer center. Does anyone remember that but me? Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right that that is, the Fulmonte was sort of, like, laid the blueprint for movies like that. Yeah. It was very zeitgeisty, the full Monty. It was very, it was a very big deal at the time. Um, it was yeah. such a big deal that it actually won the BAFTA for Best Picture. It beat LA Confidential for Best Picture. It was released in the same year that Titanic was released, I think. Is that right? It outgrossed Jurassic Park. I mean. In England. Right? The sequel to Dr- That's These are big numbers for just like a teeny, tiny little film that people that are younger maybe don't remember, but it was a huge moment had a big moment it was and um just like as someone who was watching a lot of indie movies in the 90s like i basically i was like a stupid like movie snob i'm not like that anymore i'll watch anything and you know whatever like i'm there's no movie that i'm like oh my god that's like you know nothing's beneath me like i love movies and i've seen everything since those years but back then i was kind of i was young and i was like oh i only watch like the indies but independent movies at that time were dark most independent movies were really like they left you with a pretty heavy feeling like i'm just like trying to remember the movies um from like the late 90s that I were kind of like, you know, con- contemporaneous with the full Monty. I'm, I can think of like the Adam Yugoyan movie, um, Felicia's Journey, um, In the Company of Men, 
starring uh, that guy that looks like Thomas Jane. And like, for some reason, I can never hold his name in my head. Um, but maybe we'll figure it out before the end of the show. Um, and uh, what else was like, I mean, these movies were like really, really dark and they kind of like were meant to like disturb and upset you. Like that kids. was like, filmmakers, kids, yeah. sure. Yeah, that's a perfect example of that. These movies were like intended to like, you know, make you feel bad. Um, and then you have a movie like this that is like, I allowed myself to watch because I'm like, oh, it's foreign technically and like independent. And it's like such a feel good movie. Like you just feel happy every time, you know, like there's nothing, um, there's nothing like it. To this day, I haven't seen a movie that quite has that like magic and charm. So very it was nice. It was nice to have that break in like all like the sad, you know, upsetting movies. Yeah, it's a really great point of context. It's not upsetting. It's not gritty. It's like very charming and wholesome. And despite the concept is actually like, yeah, very sort of weirdly family friendly. Not super family friendly. Depends on your is family. It, is it Aaron Eckert that you're thinking of? Yeah, that's him. Yes. I don't know why. I can't remember his name ever. Before we continue with our episode, here's a word from our sponsor. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing podcasting made easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. But yeah, I, I think uh, to go sort of full circle to the, the charm of this movie, one of the charms of this movie, I think, rests in how they use the music and how this really like disco, bright party music from the 70s uh, it seems to kind of liven up this really dreary town. So it's kind of like a cool use of it. Like I don't always get down with like jukebox songs in in um you know soundtrack use, but I feel like here it's amazing. You dance with it. So I actually had this like fantasy of like I'm just gonna like just put it all out there um, of like because I have seen this movie so many times in the theater. I was like imagining like a world where like you do like a you rocky horror picture show the full monty because there's so much music and dancing and you know you can sing along to you know, to a lot of these songs if you want to but it's just and like so many things that you could do to like interact you know back with the movie if you wanted to and i'm just like this is like a missed opportunity <laughs> to like, like in the theater i just thought that would be like so cool I'm with you. Why? Maybe it's a thing somewhere in the UK and we just don't know it. Yeah, I think one of my favorite, it's sort of a jukebox moment and it's also like a movie within the movie, weird self-referential moment. They're trying to learn to dance and so they're sitting around watching the iconic scene from Flashdance uh, where she's <laughs> the main character in Flashdance is supposed to be a, a steel worker. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who actually is a steel worker in the full Monty is like, well, she's doing it all wrong. It's <laughs> like way right. too much. This isn't steel work. And they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> like we're trying to dance. And it's all set to like, you know, what a feeling, whatever that song is from from Flashdance. Like, I mean, the track from Flashdance is very fun. Written by Giorgio Moroder. There you go. <laughs> trivia here um i love 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 that scene it's so funny when i was watching the movie this week re-watching it, it i was still laughing my butt off at it and my favorite thing is like the callback a little bit later when he's just dave and gary are having a conversation and he dave's um gary says like you know you can dance as well as the girl from flash dance or whatever and Dave says, well, I can definitely weld better than her. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> he won't let it go. He's fixated on, like, her lack of welding skills, which I just okay. find. Yeah. And it's such a perfect, the whole, like, commentary is so perfect because, of course, that's what he's going to be, like, more focused on. Yeah. Sorry, I hope my chair is not too creaky. Oh, no, you're good. Um, there are also a couple of songs on this soundtrack that feel um, very distinctly British, like to the extent where I feel like if you're a British semi-indie film or indie film, you have to have them in your movie. So like Rock and Roll Part 2, Gary Glitter is in this. Very problematic. Um, who is Pro- problematic? Yeah, problematic. In 97, right? Nobody knew in 97? That song <laughs> used to be like the goal song for so many hockey teams. Right. right. It was like the ultimate jock jam. His whole yeah. jock jam. No, we can't jock jam to it because it's just, it's way too gross. But the Joker can jock jam to it. Right. But that song and, and Make Me Smile come up and see me by um, Cockney Rebel, which is also in the Velvet Goldmine soundtrack. I feel like if you are like in a working class area of England or something, and that's like where you're setting your film, you have to have these, these two tracks. Also, the song um, Je T'aime, I think it's Jetem. Um, and now I can't remember because my my full Monty cassette tape is like long, long gone. Um, and it's hard to find online. I like it's hard to find the list online. I'm not sure if that song was on the actual soundtrack, but it's definitely the movie. And I feel like so many British movies, maybe even like to this day, if there's like a scene that involves like sex, love, like sensuality, something like that, like that song has to be in there. It's super funny to me because like Je T'aime Moi Non Plus by Serge Gainsborough and and uh, Jane Birkin, it's kind of like the almost like parody level, like quintessential, like sexy French song, nice. which is so far like from what these British characters are and understand that the contrast is like almost uncomfortable. Right, exactly, exactly. It's actually not on the soundtrack, but... Yeah, I kind of... It's pretty, just pretty prominent in the movie. Yeah, but actually, I mean, that scene was kind of amazing where it was, um, the, when it was playing, it was this steel worker, a former steel worker or whatever, who was auditioning for them. And he just was like in so much pain, like trying to like remove his clothes that they had to stop him because they could tell that he just like didn't want to do this and just like just trying this out, like out of desperation. So that was really, and that contrast, right? Like Nicole, you were saying like between 
this song that is just like over the top, like an ex expression of, you know, sensuality that is supposed to, you're just supposed to like fully like, you know, enjoy yourself like listening to um and then you have this like horrible like visual of like a man who's just like suffering like trying to get through this this is so uncomfortable and so far out of his depth and this song is playing and it's just you like cringe for him you're like i don't want to get him out of this situation um but i think that's kind of how anybody would feel if they were put like under a spotlight and that song was playing and you had to perform to it because it's it's super over the top <laughs> Too much so good song choice right yeah that was a bad yeah fitting i love that for a stripper edition some guy is, is a guy for, who was like i'm gonna do the donald o'connor thing from singing in the rain oh yes that was that's his like gimmick <laughs> and it's like for for what do you know what what you're auditioning for and you're like oh yeah i'm gonna do that thing from singing in the rain and then not do it. That's <laughs> that's Hugo Spear, right? Yes, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Apparently, he has some um, conduct issues, which will, which means he will not be returning for this uh, um, Full Monty continuation series. That's a bummer. Yeah, I don't know too much about him in general, but Spear was removed from the series due to inappropriate conduct claims. That stuff's but Yeah, I just love that this Sheffield guy is like, I'm going to do this thing from Singing in the Rain. <laughs> I was like, I did not expect a singing in the rain reference in this movie. Well, it's so cool how they, there's like something from like every genre of music and dancing that is like somehow represented in this movie, which is like why, you know, it's like why music is such an important part of the movie and, um, you know, made so much sense that they made it into a musical which I would actually love to see maybe one day because um, that's probably a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but so I, when I was reading about, about the full Monty, like reading some background. So Anne Dudley was the, um, the composer. She um, created the original score. She actually won the Oscar for best original um, score for a comedy or musical for this movie, she actually got the Oscar. And she was saying that like her, the the original composition was inspired by this idea of like having all these guys who are different, different men from different backgrounds. Um, and like all of like the different instruments, like the harmonica, the baritone sax, like all of this stuff, they were like all different, but like when you hear them all together, it all makes sense. And so that's kind of like the whole soundtrack, like I see that way, like there's so many, like it's every kind of different sort of music, um, but it all kind of makes sense when you throw it all together, like it somehow is just like a lot of fun. Yeah, and I didn't realize that in 1997, they had two score categories, they had 
mm-hmm. best original score for like comedies and musicals and then best original score for dramas mm-hmm. yeah i found that really weird too i don't know when they when they dropped that other category but yeah it was interesting and, and apparently her win is like a little bit was a little bit controversial because people felt it wasn't um it wasn't necessarily like a very um, forward score. It's like an underscore that you don't necessarily like register strongly when you watch the film, but I feel like it's effective um, in that it carries the the story, right? Which is what you want is something that supports the action. Exactly. I think she did an amazing job. And by the way, she, um, she also did the film score for uh, American History X. Oh, wow. And Say Anything. Wow. Oh, and The Crying Game. Wow. So she's incredibly accomplished. Um, and I think that the, the criticism she received for this was not fair because she did an amazing job, I think, of, like you said, Nicole, like not, you know, kind of overshadowing the the narrative and just kind of like providing like a beautiful like foundation where this for the story to unfold and it's so recognizable to me like i mean you know i've seen the movie many times but like i love that to me kind of um harken back to a kind of their sort of like a mid-century sound to her composition and but it would but kind of like a little you know um like muted and it was like perfect to me because it's like it's like she wanted to give a little bit of like the heyday of Sheffield right which was like in the 70s but then like remind you that you know things are like not that good right now so like it's like you take that that sound of like the golden time of the city but then you kind of like bring it down a little to like reflect like the current situation yeah i love the way that you explain that i feel like that's correct right is that she did something that was very representative of the time and place and that sort of you know like lifted the emotions of the characters as opposed to being you know parts of the soundtrack which are meant to be a little bit more showy and representative of like the musical numbers and the the live performances and and that contrast of like oh look at all these guys like finding joy again which is really nice kind of like accepting themselves a lot of like really nice themes in this actually yeah it's, it's, a journey. it's a journey of men like coming to grips with feelings yeah i mean and these are men who are going through a crisis of like identity and you know like some of the worst things that anyone can go through right like gerald hasn't told his wife in like six months that he's you know been unemployed um dave like can't get it up in the bedroom because you know he of his like body issues gary can't see his son it's like all of these men and then like the overarching theme of like you know the more like widespread like unemployment that like everyone is dealing with um you know and i think what makes this movie so great is that they're men aren't allowed and certainly not in the 90s like not at this time to be vulnerable and to like show emotion and to admit that they're going through a hard time and ask for help and stuff and to see that you know i think that's what makes magic mike so successful is that like you see vulnerability 
in men, which is like, we're just so grateful. We're all grateful. Like we've all suffered so much from like toxic masculinity. <laughs> we're just grateful to see like some like, like authentic emotion. It's like a beautiful thing to see. And it's easy to diminish or to dismiss a movie like The Full Monty or a movie like Magic Mike as being frivolous or being, you know, kind of lightweight entertainment. But I actually think this, in a comical way, deals with some really serious themes. And for 1997 was a really deep exploration of male friendship and the way guys deny, you know, kind of like their emotions and I, just the idea of like these like kind of hyper traditional masculine guys like being able to be this vulnerable as you said is like kind of cool there's something like very like rebellious about this movie yeah that is really really well said rebellious it does a really good job balancing the darkness as we were talking about in independent films like there is some dark undercurrents to this film but in like a pretty digestible way like, you know, we have repossess, we have, you know, people repossessing your belongings because you're unemployed. We have, you know, not being able to come up with, you know, the child support to be able to see your, your son, you know, and the potential of losing custody of him, right? You have someone who's trying to kill themselves in the beginning of the film. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's also a very sweet um, romantic story there, too, between um, Lomper and uh, who is um, the, his name is Guy. Okay, yeah. So weird that I don't, you know, it's really interesting that, like, I was thinking about this, like, after this last time that I watched this, the individual characters to me, even though, like, I love this movie and I was, like, like low-key obsessed with it at one point in my life, the individual characters are like, except for like the very memorable presence of Dave and Gary, um, like don't really matter as much as like the ensemble. It's all about the ensemble cast and how they work together. I think that's kind of like the overarching like theme of this movie is that it's about these different people all who, when they come together, like something incredible and magical happens. Yeah, and I think um, it's such a kind of rich tapestry of these like Sheffield characters that it, it is very much like a true ensemble, except for like the couple of main characters that you do get like a deeper dive into like their motivations and their lives. The rest of it is just kind of like this really wonderful color. Even the characters that get like two lines, I want to know more about them. <laughs> Like the yeah. ladies that they go up to initially with the flyers about doing the, the strip show and telling them like, oh yeah, it's going to be the full Monty. That's why it's different than Chippendales are like so funny. <laughs> They're so great. If there's one thing that I could say um, that is like not so great about this movie is that there's not a lot of well-developed um, female characters not really anyone other than potentially Dave's wife because the story that they have to tell about Dave kind of like requires the wife to also be like a pretty like relatively well-developed character so that you know there is some interaction there um but a lot of the women are painted as kind of like the enemy right of like these working class men um and so it's it's sad, like it, it's mildly like upsetting to me when I'm watching the movie now, but you know, that's kind of like 
that's the story that they were telling at the time, right? They were trying to tell, <clears throat> they were trying to tell the story of like what they saw happening. And that was like how, you know, maybe that's like realistic, like to these men really did see most women in their lives as like, you know, not their partner, not an equal or whatever, but like, you know, the two women that are like, they're coming to the show with scissors or whatever. And like the ex-wife who's like not sympathetic or understanding to her husband who lost his job. And like the, um, you know, like the women in the beginning who like go into the bathroom and they're like kind of painted as like harpies or whatever. So that's kind of, that's a shame, you know, but I mean, I think we just have to like, understand that that was the time yeah a lot of movies in the 90s and i would argue like early 2000s which is like an extension of the 90s is they're very much like two-dimensional female characters not oriented around female agency at all <laughs> yeah and i i covered the wild wild west movie with will smith for a different podcast and i was like man this movie really hates women like <laughs> that movie they're even there's even less depth to them and they're all wearing like some sort of like corset <laughs> you know and it's like okay like this is really bad the full monty like, like the full monty is like little women compared to the wild wild west so the wild wild west is the movie with will smith and kevin klein right yes because also like kind of interestingly that movie um called a million ways to die in the west that was made by seth mcfarlane that that was like the most like blatant um blatantly written pick me female role that i have ever seen in my entire life charlize theron's character in that movie i don't know if you guys have seen it or remember it but it was like insane like okay like did you get picked or what like i couldn't believe like it, I was I, halfway through that movie. I was like, I never want to watch movies again. <laughs> it almost like ruined me. Yeah. So I, I do feel like the women are underdeveloped in this film for sure. But in the nineties, like this is not that bad. For By nineties standards, it's not that bad. And at least I feel like they're treated with a modicum of respect. And there is kind of this like pervading idea in the film that the women have it together and that know like what the hell is up. And these men are just kind of bumbling through their various existences, trying to get yeah, it. And the ex-wife kind of comes around, right? She shows up at the end and has a good time and brings the sun and won't let her new love come with because obviously that would make things super uncomfortable but you know like there's there's that small little like all right like let's see what he's up to let's have a good time with this yeah i mean i think like there's a happy ending there for everyone right and that's kind of like that's the but it's sort of like um the ending to me is like kind of like bittersweet right because it's like, first of all, like you've just spent like an hour and a half with these characters and you kind of like love them and love the world that they've created for you to like hang out in. And now it's like over. And that always like makes me like a little sad. And then 
so I think it's also cool though, that they're making a show that is going to have all the original characters because I'm like, I've always wanted to know, right? Like what happens after, after the clothes come off? Like what's next for these characters? Yeah. The ending is abrupt. Like for those that don't remember the ending or maybe not familiar with it. So they get to this climactic performance where they're supposed to show the full Monty and be like fully nude. And the whole thing is done to this Tom Jones cover of Randy Newman's song. You can leave your hat on. I see what they did there. Um, so that you see them um, is such a classic 90s thing. You see them get naked from behind and you see they're like, you know, like pale nude butts, uh, but you don't see the front. And then it like freeze frames on like their butts, like they did it and then it ends. <laughs> it's kind of the ending. And it's pretty clear that this performance is like a one time only thing. Like this is not like, oh, now this is our new business. <laughs> You know, like, it's like, all right, we're going to be able to do this once and then we're going to have to, like, figure out our shit afterwards. So it, it's a, it's like a small victory. Right. That is, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, Ryan, because that is also kind of like what makes it sort of like a bittersweet thing because you're like, okay, like, that was fun. Like, that was a, a great time for these characters and, like, a moment they'll remember for the rest of their lives. But now it's just got to get serious and they have to, like, really you know, deal with the issues that they've been kind of contending with in this movie. They went for the super happy ending to like co-op from Wayne's World. Like it's the super happy ending, right? And we're not going to see any of like the potential fallout or reconciling with all the things that you guys have like done for the past two hours and how that's actually going to work out. Yeah, like it's going to pay for like three months of child support. For, <laughs> Seem like they would dads, be funny. You know? Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I was... This is because I'm me and like going through the economics of the situation. I'm like, I wonder how much they actually made for like a one night. This is this really going to be as lucrative as they think? <laughs> how much were these tickets? At the, yeah, at the end, when they're like probably counting their money and they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> split it like seven ways plus pay for the right. venue, you know? <laughs> right. The kid gets some because he's like basically like management for. Right. Them. Because he's yeah. he's bankrolling this thing. Right? He gets it back. He gets his hundred bucks back. <laughs> One thing that kind of bugged me about watching the movie uh, this week was, it's like, why are we doing so much striptease in front of family? <laughs> right? Because Horace is like, yeah, there's, oh, my niece is here. And it's like, why? I know. I had that same kind of like, Ugh, it's not great. And I mean, they do acknowledge it. Like, like family services does get involved at one point. They do kind of like get caught red handed with having kids on the premises as they're doing their, you know, like pre-show, <laughs> like their test run for like a bunch of elderly women. <laughs> and then they got hauled off like to the police station and everything. So it's like, it does have its moment. Like they do try to address it but it's, it's it's heavily awkward the way that i like my takeaway from it was like they're just so clueless that they don't it doesn't even really enter into their orbit that like oh yeah this is maybe not appropriate right uh, yeah that's <laughs> and it's cool. kind of that maybe maybe that's also the only people that they have to ask <laughs> exactly yeah but they're not like it's not like they're experienced in any kind of like entertainment you know anything in like of that nature so 
they're like, well, who should, how about grandma? Like, it just like doesn't occur to them to like, and they're not really like fully comfortable yet, you know, even like in front of each other, like much less strangers. So I guess they just kind of let Horace, you know, invite who he was going to invite and, and then they're all, and they're all like kind of so busy, worried about their own like shortcomings and issues that um, it sort of like preoccupies them a lot. And they're not like sitting there like, let's make a plan. And like, you know, what's like the rehearsal schedule? Um, because like Gerald is afraid that he's going to get a hard on like during his performance. And then Dave is, you know, worried about like how people are going to perceive him. And, um, you know, everyone's got like their own thing that is like they're dealing with and kind of like the way that it all sort of like haphazardly falls together. I think it was part of like the journey, part of the fun. It's very haphazard and that is what makes it fun, right? They're just kind of like ping-ponging around and being these total fish out of water. It, it kind of gives me the same vibes as Little Miss Sunshine when she does the, Little Miss Sunshine does the performance to Rick James Super Freak. And she just right. kind of doesn't know and like her grandpa didn't tell her, like maybe I'm going to be maybe people are going to take that wrong. Like it feels fairly innocent the way that it's played in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. You're so right. That's a good analogy. By the way, um, apparently there, so the people at the final performance, the people in the club, so they hired extras, it was like 50 extras and they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know that there was going to be full nudity from these guys so like when you see the reactions at the end from people other than like from the extras other than like the the cast members that are there like the why the wives and everything um that's like a, a real reaction to what they're seeing macy it's genuine yeah isn't there isn't there some sort of liability with that <laughs> you know, like, right? you're, you're gonna see like naked people you have to like tell people right what kind of waivers did they is that have? legal is that legal you're a producer <laughs> what kind of waivers did they have to sign? <laughs> they probably signed something <laughs> yeah like i think even if you were to get people from central casting like i think you have to be like there's gonna be like some nudity in the scene <laughs> I don't think you could just be like, push them onto set and be like, go. Maybe they told them nudity, but they didn't tell them the full Monty was going to happen. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? We'll never know. It's lost to history. That seems like they came out okay. Also, I just want to note that if you want to hear the word like Willy a thousand times, this is the movie for you. This is, I was like really obsessed for a, a brief hot minute with listening to audio clips from Prince Harry's memoirs, <laughs> Fair. <laughs> because they're ridiculous, first of all, but like his British accent sounds like Gordon Ramsay to me. <laughs> and so it's like him like talking about his Todger, which is Todger is apparently slang for your 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 thing. It sounds pretty nasty. It sounds yeah. like scale than Willie. Yeah. Well he he, he he was a royal, so you know, he has to use the proper slang. Isn't that crazy though? Can like, you Sheffield slang? Right? Not Willie. It's not Willie. Although he's That's not proper Willie, which is a whole other situation. Anyway. Well that Willie is quite a todger. <laughs> the point of this is that British people have some very like colorful words for their genitals. 
Yeah, and um, I'll I'll give a piece of unsolicited advice. So lately, like my whole thing, um, just in general, when I'm watching anything on TV, I always put the sub the subtitles on the captions. Mm -hmm. um, because it just makes me like, I don't know, it's like, it's so easy to miss stuff. Yeah. And I just feel like I'm more like fully involved if I see like the captions come up. So this is a great, this movie is a great opportunity to use your captions if you're not like an avid caption user like I am, because you will literally like understand, there's like half of the movie that you may not get because of the very specific, not just the very specific slang, but the fact that they have pretty heavy accents, you know, it's not quite as bad as train spotting. I think I understood like maybe 20% of train spotting the first time that I saw it, like understood like the words that were being said. Um, but definitely like it's, it's a lot better with the captions. So much better. I also pay a lot more attention with captions. And so it's yeah. nice when you're watching something like uh, The Full Monty or Letter Kenny or Train <laughs> Oh, yeah. You're just trying to like get past uh, <laughs> two like these really colorful phrases because they're actually freaking amazing, but you have to understand them first. And they're just packing so many like jokes into so many. a very short amount of time. Yeah, and it's it's a rapid fire sort of delivery in a lot of places in this film too. It, so it's like train spotting in that way. Robert Carlyle's character, at least in this film, is like pretty clear when he speaks, and not like his Begbie character in Train Spotting, where you have no fucking idea, and that's kind of part of the fun. <laughs> Nobody knows what he's saying. Even the other Scottish people are like, I don't know, because <laughs> his accent was so thick. Yeah, you might need a. That was like Colin Farrell twenty years ago. <laughs> um yeah so captions are the way to go also helps me um put my phone down if i if i'm like mm. i'm saying to myself like okay like i'm gonna be like paying attention to the subtitles it kind of like is a step towards like removing my phone from the situation are there are there clues of the loomper guy uh love story that i missed earlier in the film before they get together. Because it seems very quick, right? You're like, wait, but did they? I think that like, if you're if you're really paying attention, you can see like some glances they exchange and like a certain way, like um, Guy like teases Lumper at one point where he's like, you have like saggy titties or whatever which he like doesn't really it's just a way for him to like kind of interact with him or whatever right. and yeah like you can see i mean maybe like knowing like knowing watching it already knowing what's going to happen like maybe that's something that's like more clear but you can definitely see like some sparks like flying between them yeah and i always wonder too like that how much of that got cut or censored potentially because this was 1997 and having a gay relationship in your film was maybe not the most desirable thing from the movie studio, which sucks, but that's probably got, it's gotta be part of it. Right. Cause that's another one of those storylines where it's like, I wish that had gone so much further. I, I want to know more about it. Yeah, that's probably true. They probably like really underplayed it and just kind of hinted at it because they didn't want to 
like upset anyone or whatever. Totally. And like for the time, it's it's a really it's actually a really bold choice, especially when you're considering like the setting is this working class part of England with a lot of racism and homophobia and, and things that maybe we are not as cognizant of or that we take for granted now. But you can see how they were trying to subvert that in a lot of the the themes and stories in this film, which is cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they condense it to a very svelte 91 minutes. Yeah, it always yep. goes by fast for me. Although I think it's really well paced, actually. I think like the pacing is, um, and like the evenness of it is like one of the great features of this movie. But it's just kind of like, it's never like quite enough. I just want to like spend more time with the characters and like in, you know, in this world. Yeah, I love this for a series. I'm really curious to see how the how the reboot continuation, whatever it is, series comes together. I think that could have a lot of potential and be really fun. Yeah, yeah. I want to learn more about horse's life and yeah. what his situation at home looks like. Right. Because we don't really learn a whole lot about him. No, and he has the best intro during the um, sort of casting portion where they're doing auditions for the show. And you're yeah. like super intrigued by him and he's like very cool. And then they never really get deeper into that. So on the flip side, I kind of miss movies that are a little bit short and not like testing me with like a four hour runtime. Oh, yeah, that was great. I was like 91 minutes. Perfect. Perfect. It is. <laughs> well paced like you said it's just you know the pacing is there and you're invested the entire time and satisfying resolution great film yeah, especially for a movie that is nominated for like best picture like rarely do you get like something under our you know two hours this is the BAFTA best picture okay higher it grossing than Jurassic Park beat LA Confidential. <laughs> I just want people to understand what we're working with Made for three and a half million dollars and grossed 230. Right. And I'm just kind of like, I'm so curious about um, Peter, what's his name? Cat Catneo, the director, because he did not like he um, he won an award. He won like MTV's like best new filmmaker or something like that. The MTV movie awards. And, you know, this movie is amazing. He didn't really do anything after this. Like he, um, the most notable of his works following the full Monty is The Rocker, the 2008 Rain Wilson vehicle, um, mm. which is okay. It's also like, uh, it has some, some similarities, cute little, um, you know, setback to success, kind of like music based, um, you know, feel good comedy, I guess. Um, and it it's definitely like worth a watch, right? If like someone hasn't seen it, but it's not like it's not anything groundbreaking. And that's really like the most famous movie that he did after this. So what happened? Yeah, why did he fall off? Such a strong start. Well, it looks like he followed up the full Monty with something called Lucky Break. Mm-hmm. It's like a prison prison escape movie. But like a musical? Oh, is it a musical? All right, yeah. I mean, that's on brand, I guess. Yeah, Stephen Fry wrote lyrics for it. I have, I have no idea what this movie is. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia for it. I mean, it also could be one of those situations where he works, you know, across the pond, but we don't necessarily, he doesn't have the same notoriety. 
stateside? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I'm always amazed by like celebrity and the level of celebrity in the UK that like we barely know here. Right. Right. Yeah. And they like are really obsessed with their celebrities. According to uh, Rotten Tomatoes, Lucky Break fails to do anything new with the full Monty formula. 48% on Metacritic. 48% on Metacritic from 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it doesn't seem like it did very well. And perhaps that tanked his career. He did some, you know, TV stuff, but even that, it was like two episodes here, four episodes here. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty sad. That's, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Tried to like recreate the magic of Full Monty and never succeeded. Maybe it just got too big. Maybe the pressure was too much because I think when you do create something that is right out the gate, like first major thing that you've done and it blows up like this, that's got to be hard. It's the yeah. second album problem, right? I guess. Yeah, it's like the guy who did Chronicle and then they gave him the Fantastic Four and he was going to get a Star Wars movie and he just. Right. Right. And it's like, that sucks, right? <laughs> Right, like it was just too much all at once. The most successful, or I, I, I don't, I don't know if, sorry, I don't know if I should consider this the most successful, but he did a show called Rev. Um, British. This was in 20, 2010 to twenty fourteen, and that was nineteen episodes. So at least that got some run. Olivia Coleman was in it. Oh, and Tom Hollander. So, I mean, I, I I think he's doing fine, even though he may not be a household name. All right. So I, I won't lose any sleep worrying about Peter Kavanaugh's career. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he is unemployed, he can consider taking up stripping. <laughs> well, I don't know. He kind of lost the whole magic of the full Monty, according to that review. <laughs> By the way, really quick, the TV show Hung, the HBO TV show Hung. sort With of Thomas Jane. That one is with Thomas Jane. Um, that is kind of the same idea as the as at least Gaz's storyline in the Full Monty. He needs his kids back, so he does something like that requires nudity. <laughs> and that was a great show. It lasted three seasons. Yeah, I think I I didn't get to it because I didn't I didn't have HBO at the time, but I know people that. We're really into it. It was pretty good. It was, there was a lot of the cool, like, um, sort of like almost groundbreaking things about it, like the way that it addressed like female sexuality. Um, I thought there was a lot of great stuff going on in that show. And also it was cool because it's set in Detroit. <clears throat> and my husband's from Detroit and we had just gone to, he just took me there to visit for the first time ever, like right around the time that the show came out. And so it was kind of fun to watch it because it was like, it's like a slice of like Michigan. What I was curious about, okay, so Dina, your, your headphones are on, it's 1997, you're running around New York, you have the full Monty soundtrack playing on your cassette tape. I'm getting a little misty eye. <laughs> Is it nostalgic for you? Is that like a very nostalgic moment in time? totally is like i mean it's it really like brings me back because um so i was like in downtown new york like i went to school um in like the down 
very close to where the the World Trade Center was. And so I have this like distinct memory of like walking around like past like the Twin Towers and just like in that general area and just like listening to my various sound. I like I've always loved soundtracks like my most of my like cassette music collection, whatever was soundtracks. Um, and so like, listen, I remember, I distinctly have this memory of like a, a breezy day in April, like Irene Cara's, uh, what a feeling comes on and like the twin towers are like looming in front of me. Like it definitely like takes me back to that moment. I love that so much. It's like, I know people overuse, like it was a more innocent time, but it really does feel like that. Like it's such a kind of like cool lo-fi, like we're all kind of nineties kids here. I feel like nineties, former nineties teens. So I feel that in my bones. I want to like go to a Tower Records. Oh my God. Well, it was like border. So in, okay. So there was, used to be a mall underneath the World Trade Center was um, like an underground mall. And my friends and I spent a lot of time there. Um, there was like a variety of like different stores and like little restaurants and stuff. Um, and there was a borders there that I spent a lot of time in. And borders was like the, for like a nineties teen, it was like, like what could freaking be better books of like all kinds and CDs. And then they had that thing where you could like listen to the, some of the CDs were like set up to listen to with like headphones and then um, a pretty like clean, decent bathroom. And then you could also get coffee. I mean, it was like, I lived there basically. Yeah. This is like speaking to like every fiber of my soul. I let that's where I spent all my time in high school, like all of it. It, it was a magical place for those that do not remember borders. RIP. It was incredible. I don't know if I ever bought anything from borders, but I spent a lot of time at borders. Well, they had a mean cafe that, cause this is kind of like pre Starbucks era and pre having that like third place to hang out with. So if you're just like a surly teenager that needs something to do, they had a cafe that they would never kick you out of. Like you could stay at the borders cafe for eight hours and nobody was going to call you on your bullshit. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it was like for a teenager, it was like, so, I mean, and not just a teenager, like there were so many, there was always like the cafe was like, popping all the time. There was people yes. reading books that, you know, I doubt that they paid for, um, but they were just like hanging out. Everybody was like, it was just a freaking reading room. It was amazing. And they used to have a coffee drink at Borders that they called the Mocha Berry, which is a, a cafe mocha with um, raspberry syrup in it. And I had like a craving for it the other day. And so I went, don't come for me. But like Starbucks, like, I'm sorry, Starbucks is kind of mid and like, you know, we, I think we all live in Southern California, right? So for me, it's all about coffee bean, but I didn't think coffee bean had raspberry syrup. So I went to Starbucks and just was like fully disappointed. <laughs> so sad. I wish somebody would reboot Borders. If we can reboot the full Monty, can we not like make Borders the thing again? Like, I don't know, like, forget. Like we're rebooting Toys R Us, right? Yeah, we're reading Toys R Us. Like, forget Blockbuster Video. Like, I need Borders again. Anyway, this is now a Borders stand podcast. Yeah, I will still not buy anything, but I would like a Borders. So, this soundtrack, do you have a favorite song on it that, like, something that stands out to you? Or is your experience of listening to it like, no, I got to listen to the whole thing front to back so that I can kind of relive the movie? 
Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of that. Like, that's a big part of it is when I was listening to it, it was just like calling up like the same emotions, like the ups and downs that you get from watching the movie. Um, and I think it's, it's really hard for me to choose between the Tom Jones cover of You Can Keep Your Hat On and then um, Come Up and See Me. I feel like the the um the tom jones cover just ekes ekes up out just like a little bit ahead because it's, first of all it's like tom jones so like just stop like who can beat tom jo like you can try but it's gonna be hard to beat tom jones doing the, a cover of a randy newman song like it's beautiful um but i just i love that scene that they play like where they use come up and see me because it really is like a, this beautiful like montage of um, the guys like hanging out and it's like a great like expression of, you know, you get to see like their friendship kind of like blooming and them like growing closer to each other. Like that is, that scene kind of like really captures that. So um, yeah, those are both like amazing songs, but I think Tom Jones probably wins. Oh, and let me add on the Tom Jones cover. Um, that was produced by Ann Dudley, who did the score. Oh. And they had worked before on a cover of Prince's Kiss in 1988. Which is crazy to me, like, that she just had this pre-existing relationship with Tom Jones. It is so yeah. perfect this film like of course it has to have some element of tom jones like nobody represents throwing your panties at a stage better than tom jones exactly middle-aged middle-aged man too yeah totally it works yeah i mean ultimately what's interesting is that the the like climactic scene of the movie is all about the female gaze right even though the story is about men and like in, in this movie, men's lives and their experiences like stand in for like the human experience in general. Um, women don't really get a lot of time or, you know, any depth to speak of. But ultimately, this is about what a woman wants to see. And it's so cool how like right before the, the ending stripper scene, there's this like incredible moment between Dave and Jeannie where he's like, who wants to see my fat ass up on stage? And she's like, I do. And it sort of is like, it's like the perfect way to lead into the ending because like, it's about like what, like women maybe like for, for a woman, it may be more important to see like authenticity um, from men rather than necessarily like oiled up, like perfect pecs or whatever like so that is i think such an incredible like statement yeah I, I think one of the reasons that it works that the climax works so well is that none of the men none of these characters um physically really change throughout the movie like i thought you know like they exercise and stuff but no one is like noticeably different right which is great with Dave's story, right? Because it would be kind of a letdown if, like, he got, like, super in shape for this, right? Like, it has to be right. he doesn't lose any weight, right? Like, that's that's kind of why it works, right? Like, they're all still the lovable losers. And I think 
but I think the reason that everyone comes out and they're curious is because these are our boys. These are our Sheffield boys. We're going to watch our Sheffield boys do this. Right. Yeah. It's like there's so much you can see so much pride. I love that insight that their their bodies don't change. Like they do this whole workout montage and he, you know, the the bigger guy puts like saran wrap around like his midsection and is trying yeah, to is like Yeah, is that a real thing in the 90s? Was that a real way to lose weight or well, people I thought it was a real way to lose weight? Right, the 90s and like early 2000s were just like crazy body fascism. Like I there's a lot of like you need to be like whittled down even if it takes wearing like a trash bag suit and running for 10 miles and like eating green tea pills for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was a weird <laughs> time for bodies. But that's kind of why this this movie is a little bit brave, right? Because it does discuss some things that I think maybe then we didn't have the language to articulate. So we weren't like as a culture talking about body positivity and self-acceptance and all this stuff that like is kind of commonplace now and that we feel comfortable having discussions around we didn't feel comfortable having it then and so they kind of took this like small town slice of life and and made it into this really like affirming thing it's it's kind of rebellious i like that about this movie yeah i mean i think you're you're so right there's nothing at that time that could have been more rebellious than just like allowing men to be like totally vulnerable and address like these issues that, you know, men were not really supposed to be honest about or like act like, you know, this didn't, this is not the stuff that concerned them. I recently watched the Hulu series Chippendales um, with Kumail Nanjani in it. It's kind of like the true story of all the like dark, weird um, stuff that went on with like the founding of Chippendales, which is a good series. But one of the things that it definitely like emphasized is like, yeah, that that somehow became like this idea of like physical perfection that was like really super important at that time. And then, it you know, it got so big that it was like parodied on SNL and you'd have Patrick Swayze as like the Chippendales dancer and then um, Chris Farley as like, you know, the parallel to that. And it's like played for laughs. Right. Which kind of sucks. This movie, I think, like really tips a lot of that like on its head. So like s same time frames, but doing much different work with the same cultural material. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the, it, it where whereas Chris Farley, um, you know, was like it was just supposed to be like a joke, right? Like, can you imagine like this fat guy dancing like at Chippendales? Like, isn't that funny? Ha ha. Um, this is the polar opposite where it's like, wait a minute, like, you know, he might like a man with a certain type of body might feel a certain way about it. And like, let's talk about it. Let's like dive, dive into that instead of like just laughing it off. Yeah. It's not played as a joke at any point, really. It's because it, his wife loves him. And at the end, the big revelation is like, no, like she loves you the way that you are and it's fine. It's not really what is important. So yeah. yeah, there's a lot of like really great dramatic moments that I think, you know, maybe get like looked over because the premise is like kind of ridiculous. But um, every time that a character is allowed to talk about their personal issues, like when Gerald gets mad, um, when uh, Gary and Dave like mess up his interview 
and he like admits that he's been lying to his wife like that moment is so emotional and then the way the other characters are watching him like lose it and like it's an incredible dramatic moment that is you just like really deeply it's like you feel it viscerally um and then you know all of Dave's storyline, you know, Gary looks so like heartbroken every time like something with Nathan is like causing a problem between them. Um, it's just, there's like, I feel like the entire cast just really brought it. Like it's, there's no like half-assed anything in this movie. It, they just really like fully put themselves out there. It's very well acted as a full-blown adult watching this for the first time in a very, very long time. Um, I had a new appreciation for it because I actually kind of went into it thinking like, oh, it's more like a comedy, right? Like, it's, but no, it actually is like a really nice balance of comedy and drama, and it it's rare. And I think maybe that's what people felt at the time, like, oh, this really is like doing something different and special. It's a special yeah. movie. They did. It related with everyone because, like, I think we all like we all needed to experience that where it's like there's let's just like admit that life is hard and that like we need a little bit of like we need to bring in lightness like we need to and like the way to do that is through like relationships and like levity and joy in a place where it's maybe not priority and yeah like having that uh these people dance to like you sexy thing by hot chocolate is (laughs) amazing right everyone should do that I'm telling you, we need a, a Rocky Horror style like screening of the full Monty where everyone's singing and dancing. Now I like Ryan, yeah, the double feature with Magic Mike. I really like that. I feel like somebody's got to do that. Yeah, that, yes. that's inspired by a friend of mine who lives up in San Francisco. And I think when Double XL came out, I was like, uh, did you go opening night? And he was like, oh, yeah, like, um, me and my boyfriend and all like our crew, like I guess a bunch of like there was like I don't know if it was like a group chat, like like we're just gonna flood this one theater with just all gay men watching Magic Mike and we're just gonna be like screaming at the screen the entire time. And I was like, That actually sounds like a lot of fun. Actually sounds like the most fun and I'm like sad that I wasn't there. Like bring me to that screening. Where more of that please. So Maybe when this uh, TV show comes, maybe they can set up some screenings. Bring the movie back go. for like one one weekend only or something. Definitely. Well, uh, thank you, Dina, for coming on the show. I had a great time talking about the full Monty with you. Thank you guys for having me. I had a lot of fun. This was a great conversation. And one more time, a little plug for Media Path Podcast find us wherever podcasts are listened to um we're also on youtube and um you can go to the website mediapathpodcast.com for all the links and info very cool and uh you can find us on twitter and instagram um our twitter handle is soundtrack underscore your and soundtrack cast is our instagram handle and uh yeah um you can find the media path podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast one-stop shopping. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.